K-Squid listeners, it's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. When you go out into the world and walk on the earth, have you ever wondered what was beneath your feet? Animals and plants, of course, but mostly soil. Soil is a wonderful substance, an essential element in the riot of life that covers the planet's continents. But soil is not without a life of its own. A handful of fertile soil is home to more organisms than there are people on Earth. And these organisms are vital to plant and animal nutrition and growth. My guest today is Dr. Chelsea Carey, Director of Soil Research and Conservation at Point Blue Conservation Science, located in Petaluma and Bolinas, California. And we're going to talk about soil. Dr. Chelsea Carey, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thanks for having me. Uh, Why don't we begin by having you tell our listeners about Point Blue Conservation Science, what it is, what it does, and, and where does it do, you know, do its work? Or where does the staff do the work? Yeah, sure. Um, So Point Blue, we are a nonprofit. We focus generally on climate smart conservation. We have a mission to conserve birds, other wildlife and ecosystems through partnership, science and outreach. Um, We're headquartered in Petaluma, but we work all across California and beyond. Um, We have about 160 staff who are collectively working towards our mission. And there we have programs that um, put our staff everywhere from the Sierras to the sea and all the way down to Antarctica. So oh. we help to build in adaptation and resilience into landscapes um, across those places and help to think about how we can mitigate greenhouse gas emissions where possible. And so we have our uh, roots actually as a bird observatory. We started as Point Reyes Bird Observatory in the National Seashore. Um, so some listeners may be familiar, yeah, with with uh, Point Reyes Bird Observatory, PRBO, we were formerly known as. Um, and so we have a just a long history of conducting ecological monitoring to inform conservation action um, that started with birds as indicators of ecosystem health and change and has grown considerably um, over the 60 years that we've been, uh, been around. Um, we... Uh, we are a science-based organization, so we conduct original research to inform action, but we also have boots on the ground helping landowners and agencies to manage and uh, restore landscapes. And so I guess maybe to get at your question of sort of where we work and um, give the listeners maybe a better understanding of the work that we do, I have a couple of examples of things that I think we're really proud of as an organization that we've helped to accomplish over the years, some of the programs. Um, I'm one, one of them is that we've been on the Fairline Islands for over 50 years, monitoring birds mm-hmm. and um, sea life around the Fairlines um, and have helped to set uh, some conservation, you know, sort of targets and um, achievements around that. 
We have had a program where we've monitored Adelie penguins in Antarctica for over 30 years. Um, and yeah. through our work down there have helped to uh, form the creation of the world's largest marine protected area, protection area, in, uh, and that's in the Ross Sea in Antarctica. Um, we also have staff who work on uh, helping to guide conservation and management of shorebirds across the Americas. So we engage with dozens of partners and thousands and thousands of um, volunteers across, I think it's 12 countries along the Pacific, Pacific coast of the Americas to help coordinate international conservation efforts for shorebirds that in California really rely on the Central Valley for you know their stop, stopping grounds and their migration. Mm -hmm. um, we also, we have a strong program on working lands. Um, so we've leveraged over a hundred million dollars uh, from the federal government and recently just 50 million from the state of California um, to support biodiversity and soil health stewardship on working lands. So that includes forests and meadows, rangelands and croplands statewide. Um, and we also, as part of that, have an in-house restoration team. So we've restored over 42 miles of mostly riparian habitat in California, mostly in the Bay Area, um, with approximately, I think it's like 60,000 uh, students, uh, student volunteers from local elementary schools and high schools. Um, and then I think the last I'll, last uh, example I'll give of the kind of work that we do and where we do it is we have um, a strong informatics team in-house. So we really try to empower data-driven conservation. Um, and that's, at the national and international scales um, in partnership with agencies like the Department of Defense and other federal agencies. We use data management and informatics support systems to help them unlock data, to store it, to manage it um, in a way that can drive conservation decision-making for those agencies. Well, I had no idea the organization was so expansive and far-reaching. Um, Partly because uh, I, I'd heard of the Bird Observatory, but I hadn't heard of, of Point Blue until I looked you up. So uh, that's that's quite interesting. Um, we're going to come back and talk about about land management uh, a little bit later. But um, what is your role at the organization, and how did you get there? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, so I serve as the director of soil research and conservation. Um, I was hired on as the first soil scientist on staff about seven years ago uh, and have helped to grow our soils program across the organization ever since. Um, we have a small but mighty team that helps to sort of drive that work from a soil from a soils perspective and really collaborate with you know those other 160 staff across the organization uh, to achieve shared goals um, for soil stewardship and research. And, I think we see a big opportunity at Point Blue to par partner with farmers and ranchers to help achieve shared goals. And so we do do a lot in that space. And, and that's where the soils work that we do comes into play. And I think at its highest level, the work that I do, the work that I help to lead at the organization is trying to further the scientific understanding that underpins soil stewardship. We also want to cultivate awareness of soil health. So, um, you know, talk, talk to you, talk to, you know, engage with um, with all sorts of audiences and then promote the practical application of science, um, science based practices. So really get practices in on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and so my role as director of soil research and conservation, I help to set the strategy for that. I help to lead my team in developing and managing 
priority projects and partnerships. And as just one local example, I lead our on-site partnership with Tomcat Ranch, which is a demonstration ranch in Pescadero Mm -hmm. um, that aims to inspire and support engagement in regenerative agriculture. So we're their on-site science partners, and I help to lead that work. And um, and day to day, you know, a lot of what I do would be akin to what an academic scientist does. I lead proposals, act as principal investigator published papers, but I do a ton of on the ground engagement too with agency staff, landowners, um, serving in an advisory capacity, um, making sure that the work that we're doing is translated into action in whatever way that looks like. Um, How did I get here? Well, (laughs) I think I've always been motivated to, um, if I think about, if I think about the story of, of my life and in particularly like related to my career, I think I've always been motivated to help make my mark in saving the world. So when I was younger, I mean, as many of us, as many, as many of us. I used to have prospective students come in and they said something like that. And I always replied, it's a big job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just taking a small piece of it in whatever way I can. And when I, when I was younger in high school, I thought I would get a career in international relations. Um, and so uh, something totally a life that would be totally different than what I lead right now. And, you know, as, as life so often goes, that trajectory stopped short before even it even started. Um, and I was left my senior year of high school trying to figure out what else I was passionate about. And that led me into the world of soils. Okay. And um, I saw you got your PhD at UC Merced, and it looked like you were in one of the first cohorts to finish their PhDs in this program. Uh, what what was the what is the environmental systems program at at Merced exactly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was I was the second graduating PhD class. Um, so after um, after I got my undergrad at DePaul University, I double majored in biology and environmental science, and uh, it was during those years that I really fell in love with soils and grew to appreciate their importance. Um, I started off in that program as wanting to save big cats in Africa, right? Like charismatic mm-hmm. megafauna. Um, and I had the opportunity to participate in uh, an undergrad driven research project that was um, focused on urban ecology and actually restoring mm-hmm. areas in the Chicago land that were dominated by Rhamnus cathartica, which is common buckthorn. It's the most prevalent woody species in all of Chicago. It's created is it's a hedge plant so it creates really dense thickets and it's just taken over the woodlands so i got to be part of a research project that was um asking whether or not um soil restoration in particular uh could help restore these ecosystems to their more native um structure and functioning and that's really when i when i my my love and appreciation for soils grew and so i applied to you see Merced to work with Steve Hart. Um, he was one of the founding faculty there. He had been at Northern Arizona University for, uh, you know, maybe a decade prior and came to be an establishing faculty um, at UC Merced. And so I was uh, the second graduate, uh, I was in the second graduating PhD class. And uh, for those who don't know, UC Merced, it's the 10th and newest campus. So it was really, really young when I was there. And um, at least at that time, and I'm not sure if it's changed, they didn't have departments. Uh, they had programs. And the intention there was to promote interdisciplinary collaboration and minimize silos. 
And so the environmental systems program, it focused on integrating expertise across like a wide range of disciplines, including sustainable energy and engineering, water resources and climate, ecology and biogeochemistry, which is where my focus was, but then, and then natural resource management. So I took classes and was in a program, a very small program, um, with folks who were working on solar panel technology and folks who were studying evolutions of jellyfish. And so it was really um, a neat opportunity. And at that time, the the entirety of the uh, graduate student population was, I think, 200. It was very small, um, yeah. but was a, a, was a really cool experience um, because you got to really shape how the university um, was in many ways. I served on the Graduate Student Association almost every year of my PhD, and I ran uncontested every year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Chelsea Carey of Point Blue Conservation Science in uh, Petaluma, where she does work on soil range management and, and the like. And we're talking about soil. So let's get to the, to the heart of the matter. Um, we take soil for granted, I think. You know, we're, we're, we're always standing on it. It's there. It's always been there. We think it'll always be there. But that's not really the case, is it? So what is soil and how is it made? And maybe, you know, contrast that to dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I know they're not the same. <laughs> My PhD advisor always said dirt is what you get on your pants and soil is what's what you study and what provides life. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's correct. I, th- this this reflection that you have that, um, you know, soils are taken for granted. We think it'll always be there, um, but that that's not really the case. And I think we're predisposed to think of as soils as a renewable resource, something that's always going to supply us the benefits that we've experienced in perpetuity. But that isn't the case. Soil is, in fact, a non-renewable resource, um, or that's how it's considered, you know. Uh, over the scale, off. the scale that's important to, to human over beings. Over the scale that's important to us as humans, exactly. Right. So what it means is that it can't be replenished at the same rate in which it's consumed or degraded. Um, and so that resource base of soils, it's effectively shrinking due to that degradation, whether it's erosion or nutrient depletion or contamination, as well as conversion, like urbanization, putting pavement over it, actually losing the soil. Um, so that's, so because we, the soil is formed on much longer time scales, um, then then what it's lost, it can be lost very quickly. It takes a long time to form. We think about it as effectively a non-renewable resource. And while we can work to reverse degradation and rebuild soils through human activity, and that's really the foundation of the work that I do and many others do in this space, there is uncertainty about whether we can recoup all of the functioning once it's lost and to um, and like I said, to actually form new soil through a process that we call pedogenesis, um, for instance, if it's lost through erosion, that's a that that can take hundreds to thousands of years or more. So it's, soils are formed very slowly, um, even though we hope and you know can expect restoration. In in many cases, can can happen quicker. So. <clears throat> 
So I just want to reflect on, on, on that piece of it, um, it being taken advantage of and, you know, and, and why we should care about its degradation. And then to your question about what it is and how it's made, um, it's, it's most obviously, right. We think about the minerals and their organic solids in it, right. The sand, silts, and clays. And, and that's what we get on our clothes. That's, um, that's, I think what often people will refer to as the dirt component, right? It's this lifeless, um, body. Uh, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's this dynamic natural body. That's it's composed, not just of those minerals and their organic materials, but of gases and liquids and living organisms, because in the soil, um, in the soil, you have the physical particles, the sand, silt, clay, and organic matter. And those build essentially what I think of as like the walls of the house. Um, but yeah. it's real, but a house is so much more than that, right? It's us who live in it. It's the in-between spaces that um that we thrive in, that we need, and that make up the va- you know, a, a critical piece of the ho- the places that we call home. And that's the same with the soil. So the sand, silt, clay, organic matter, that makes up the walls, but it's in between those places what we call the poor spaces that actually make it a home, turn it from a house to a home in it. And, and in there it's water and it's carbon dioxide and it's oxygen. It's all these things that organisms need to, to survive. Um, and that can be influenced um, both negatively and positively from how we manage soils. Um, and, and soils and how it's made is, I mean, soils form from, from rocks. Right. And so it's through this complex process that involves transforming materials from the earth's crust um, into something that can sustain life, grow, support life. And it's done through weathering or breaking down of materials, those rock materials. And how that happens depends on all sorts of things. Um, We uh, we call it chlorped is it's for short and it's climate organisms, relief or topography and parent material and time all come together to make a soil what it is. And soils are so diverse. One soil is different from another. And so that the soils of the central coast are going to look different than the soils of the central valley, for instance. And that can have repercussions for what's possible there, what's appropriate there, um, that sort of thing. That difference uh, in in the soils is a result of different geology, I presume, right, and and uh, erosion processes and and the, and the like. That's um, right. Yeah, that's right. part of it. Yeah. 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 Um, well, now, what? Why is soil important in the grand scheme of things, and and what are its its functions? Mm. Um, soils are the foundation of life, in my opinion. Uh-huh. I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, so soils, they, you know, from its most basic sense, if we just think about the, they provide so many ecosystem services to us. In the most basic sense, we couldn't build homes. We couldn't if we didn't have soils, right? Soils are there this, this, this structural foundation for life as we know it above ground, both for us and for plants, and then the organisms who rely on them. So it's, it's a structural medium that's so critical for life. But soils do so much more than that. Soils, um, soils regulate the climate. They are, soils are exchanging gases with the atmosphere, um, continuously, the greenhouse gases that we think about and, and, and ones that we, you know, may not think about so much. So like carbon dioxide and methane, nitrous oxide, water, 
Um, so they really help to regulate the climate and um, they soils also regulate and influence water dynamics. So they capture and store water. They can filter water and make it cleaner or they can make it dirtier. Um, so they really have soils have this like critical piece of water regulation mm -hmm. as well. I think from um, a biodiversity component, something that is maybe underappreciated is that soils house just an immense amount of um, biodiversity below ground that we are just beginning to uncover. Um, and so just really playing a critical role in, in sustaining, sustaining life um, from a bio biodiversity perspective. And then of course, from a food production um, side of things, soils um, are critical and the health of the soils are critical for um, sustaining a growing population and feeding, feeding um, both humans and, you know, other organisms across the globe. And so from a, a food security perspective, soils matter for how much food we can produce, but also the quality of that food. Um, soil health is linked to uh, plant nutrition and plant quality. And so it's not just the amount that we can grow, but the quality of it. And soils are sit at the center, center of all of that. Um I'm just, I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking about, you know, about hydroponics and uh, the the quest to go to Mars uh, to try and 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 survive or, or live, at, you know, a, apart from soil. It's a hard thing to imagine. Mm -hmm. um, well, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned healthy soil. So let's talk about healthy soil and the biological community, um, the soil biomes, what they entail and what those soil communities do. And, you know, I'm thinking here of, in particular, the the publication for kids, you know, which explains it really wonderfully. Um, yeah. Um, so. I know it's a big question, but. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's good. I, the, the, my point, you know, my point is, right, is that when you, you I mean, we know, we know about earthworms, Mm -hmm. Right. But there is so much more there that we can't see. And it's I think that's what's really sort of fascinating. Yeah. Um, in in a, the statistic I like to give or the factoid I like to give is that a, in a handful of soil, you have more organisms than there are people on the entire planet. <clears throat> and if you just think about that for a second, that is mind boggling. There's a whole world in just a handful of soil. And in that, there are more organisms or more kinds of organisms. The diversity of organisms rivals or and exceeds the diversity of plants that you would find across the state of California. So it's not just that you have the sheer amount, but the sheer diversity. And it's uh, we think about earthworms, yep, as a poster child for for healthy soils, but it's like you said, it's so much more. You have organisms you can't see, like bacteria, um, maybe some that you've never even heard of. Archaea is another kind of um, microorganism. So you have bacteria, you have archaea, you have viruses, you have protists, which are other sort of single cellular organisms. You have your fungi, your mushrooms, you have nematodes, which are like roundworms and arthropods, your insects, earthworms, burrowing animals. And so all of these organisms are interacting with each other in their environment. They form a below ground food web um, and they're performing vital functions. So all of 
those important ecosystem services I just mentioned from a soils perspective, what soils provide, really the organisms below ground are the engines that are driving them. Um, and it's through their presence in our soils that we get those those services. I mean, is it is it correct to say that all of those organisms, as they're sort of eating and living and and um, you know expelling waste, are transforming the materials into soil? I mean, you know, I, I'm just sort of trying to get a hold of uh, of what exactly they're doing. Yeah, yeah, um, ab absolutely. So they are. Um, yep, they're helping to form soils. They're helping to make soils. They take plant material. And they incorporate it back into the soil. So decomposition, when when you go walk out into you know a forest and you see plant leaves that are partially broken down, it's the organisms in the soil that are doing that. And so if we didn't have soil organisms, microorganisms, earthworms, um, you we would be buried in plant litter. Like it wouldn't recycle. And so when it does that, it it incorporates plant material back into the soil, and that supports fertility. So it, it provides fertility for plants. It That's part of the process that helps to capture carbon from the atmosphere, put it back into soil. They aerate that soil. So remember how I said um, that the how the, that it's not the walls that are just important, but it's those pore spaces in between the mm -hmm. inside of your home that's mat that matters. Organisms like earthworms can create those holes. They channel, they dig. Um, and they help with this, what we would call the structure of the soil. So water can be captured, for instance, and not flow off um, on top of the landscape. And so it's it's these physical processes, these chemical processes um, that, and, and even biological. So as an example, uh, when you have the different types of fungi you have in the soil, those can help with pest resistance. So um, some organisms are pests and they can harm plants, but for every one pest there is, there's, you know, hundreds of good critters below ground. And those good critters can actually compete and help to um, suppress pest um, uh, pest attacks on plants as, as just one example, two of these biotic interactions as well that's going on below ground. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, you said we would be up to our necks in leaf litter, but if you go into a pine forest, for instance, um, you know, what you see on the ground is a lot of, of pine needle duff, mm -hmm. which isn't being decomposed. So what's going on there? It Yeah, great question. It is, it's just decomposing at a slower rate. And part of that is because um, of what the plant material is made of. So certain plant material is easier for organisms to eat and uh -huh. other plant material is harder for them to eat. So like pine needles um, are tend to be harder to eat and um, only certain organisms like to eat it. Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, I find one of the more interesting features of the soil biome to be the uh, mycorrhizal fun fungi. And uh, I had Susan Simard on the show. Um, well, it's over a year ago now talking about the, the wood wide web. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, um, you're, you write in the in the publication that they link plants together, and so maybe you could talk about, you know, what what are those the those fungi and and how do they you know operate in terms of uh, linking plants together, and what happens to plants that where there aren't these kinds of networks? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mycorrhizal fungi um, are fungi who form intimate relationships with plant roots. Um, and it's a mutualism. So they're, the fungi are getting something beneficial from that relationship and the plants are getting something beneficial. So the fungi um, are getting carbon from the plants. They need carbon to survive. And so mm -hmm. they get carbon that's captured from the plants from photosynthesis. And in exchange, they give plants, um, typically it's water and nitrogen or phosphorus from the soil. So nutrients that the plant and water that the plant needs to grow and survive. And so they're exchanging these um, services for one another. And the vast majority of plants form associations with mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and most, and there's a couple of different kinds of mycorrhizal fungi. Um, the most common one and the one that forms associations with the vast majority of plants, including grasses, um, it, they're called our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. And these fungi, they just, they penetrate plant cells. Um, and so the, the way that they exchange that water and nutrients for the carbon is a little bit different than um, fungi that are called ectomycorrhizal fungi, which form associations with, with um, lots of conifers. So pines, um, you have uh, actually like willows, and oak trees like to form associations with ectomycorrhizal fungi. And it, they do the same thing, um, but their physiology and sort of the, the way that they form the associations with plant roots is a little bit different, but really, really important. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that from a plant perspective, mycorrhizal fungi help them grow in especially, um, in especially harsh conditions. So when resources are limited, when water is really scarce, when nutrients are really scarce, those fungi, they can extend effectively the area of soil that plants can reach. They can, they're smaller typically, they can get into and scavenge for water and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And so they can, um, they can help plants under those, those stressful conditions. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz and my guest today is Dr. Chelsea Carey who's Director of Soil Research and Conservation at Point Blue Conservation Science in Petaluma, but which I have learned has its uh, own mycorrhizal roots all over the world. Um, uh, so, um, so basically, these are kind of like they, they've become extensions of the root system. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think this is a fairly recent discovery, this kind of mutualism. Is that the case? Uh, I mean, you know, I, it's not something that I heard about when I was a kid. Let me put it that way, yeah. which was a while ago. Uh, yeah. Well, let's see. Like Mike, Dr. Mike Allen from UC Riverside, he wrote, you know, one of the seminal books on this. And that must have been, oh, I don't know. I mean, a few, you know, a few decades ago, at least he's retired now. Um, so I would say it's not... Um, Super new, but I think what I what maybe you're picking up on is the broader recognition of the importance of, across fields and with a, with a broader audience. And so, mm -hmm. um, I think land stewards and um, and the public are increasingly 
uh, hearing about this importance with this, you know, sort of the, the, this wood wide web. And, and, and I think that is also as scientists begin to understand more and more the importance, right? So we've known of these relationships for, for decades. Um, mm -hmm. We've known they're important, but we continue to learn, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and this idea that um, some of these, you know, in, in these systems, some of the trees can actually be connected by their fungal partners and exchange resources. That's definitely um, a newer concept and one we're actively, I think, learning a lot about. Um, but just, yeah, I think I think folks are understanding more and more uh, the importance in, in other spheres beyond sort of the those who are leading the discourse in, in the sciences. You know, there's a tendency to anthropomorphize those those networks, right? I mean, Samar does that to, to, to a certain degree and I think upsets other people. Um, on the other hand, we never think about ourselves in terms of, of something equal to mycorrhizal networks, you know, although we have all kinds of connections that are really not visible, oh, sure. um, right? And people need people to survive. Well, look. Let's turn turn to the work that you're doing um, on uh, on restoration. Now, I mean, I got the impression from looking at at your work that your focus is on rangeland, but you mentioned that you're also doing work on, I think, on agricultural land. But start start by telling us about rangeland, you know, and why it's uh, important. Why soil restoration there is important, since uh, the cover is never going to be very thick, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say at Point Blue, we definitely do work on um, both rangeland and, you know, cropland systems. From a soils perspective, a lot of the work has been on rangelands. And so um, that's, um, that's an appropriate interpretation. And I would say, um, to answer the question about why, why rangelands? Um, well, rangelands for um, I guess I'll start with what are rangelands for folks who maybe um, aren't as familiar. And it has to do with not only the kind of vegetation and the ecosystem, but how it's used. Right. So at its, at its simplest, rangelands are um, lands that are grazed by domestic and, and wild animals. And those lands are typically grasslands or savannas, shrublands, deserts, or other uncultivated, meaning they're not like cropland areas, right? There are more natural systems. And I think the importance of rangelands emerges when you start to think about their spatial extent, both global globally and here in California. So rangelands account for um, somewhere around 28% of the land cover globally. And they're typically found in semi-arid and arid regions. Um, and in California, depending on who you who you ask, what source you look at, they make up approximately 57 million acres. So that's like half the state um, or close to it. With and Mediterranean type grasslands, so the Mediterranean type areas account for about 30% of that estimate. So a really large proportion of California and of the globe is um is range. There are open spaces. And so when you start to just recognize that, um, it's, I think, easy then to begin thinking about the ecosystem services and the importance of those landscapes. They provide many functions, so they help with food production and livestock production. 
most of the water that flows in California um, that, you know, is, is at one point or another flowing over or through rangelands. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important for water filtration and storage and flood management. Um, from a carbon sequestration and climate change perspective, um, when you think about that much land area, you don't have to have really large carbon sequestration rates um, to make a difference if you can get a little bit of a sort of carbon sequestration happening over really large areas, right? And in California, um, rangelands not only support, you know, I, I think it's somewhere like a $3 billion cattle industry, but they're hot, globally recognized as hotspots for biodiversity. And um, they provide, you know, it, uh, habitat for many, many different wildlife and pollinators and recreational opp opportunities, lots of um, human benefits related to our, our recreation and our, uh, our interactions with the environment. And so there's, they are extensively managed. So I think what you are getting at, at towards the end of your, your question is that um, they aren't intensively managed the way that agricultural like row crop landscapes are, right? We're not in there tilling and fertilizing and um, you know, pulling tractors over them. And so what is the possibility for stewardship interventions to, um, I guess, help sustain or promote those benefits that the, that the landscapes already provide? And I'd say, you know, conservation is a really important piece of the picture, keeping these open, these, these areas open and, and, and in range and under grazing lands is, um, is a key piece of the puzzle. And then, um, stewardship helps to do that. It helps to keep ranchers ranching as just, you know, um, one example. And then it also more and more, I think folks are trying to maximize the benefits that are gained per acre from each, for, from these rangelands landscapes. We're relying on them to do more and more for us as we're facing climate change and biodiversity loss and equity issues and all of these like crises of our time. We're now looking to the land base to help be part of the solution, which is great, but we're asking a lot of it. So then how can we, how can we, how can our stewardship reflect that? And I think that um, there's a lot to unpack there. And historically, because they have been extensively managed, um, people haven't thought as much as, um, about intervention opportunities. It's not as crowded of a space, I would say. More and more it is. But when we started seven years ago, it wasn't a very crowded space. And we felt like there was a lot to contribute in terms of research and understanding there. Well, let, let me ask you a question about this. So, you know, 500 years ago, there weren't cattle grazing on rangelands. Um, how, you know, what what was what was the what was the state of of those lands prior to the arrival of Europeans and cattle? Mm. Was was there different different grasses? Um, okay, there. Yeah, sorry, my phone is linked to my computer. Uh, um, different grasses. I mean, like on the Great Plains, right? The uh, the pr the prairie grass was basically extirpated and replaced, right? Um, are the rangelands now characterized heavily by invasive species mm. as a result of grazing? Mm. Mm. Good question. Yeah, I mean, California's rangelands and our grasslands in particular are a highly changed landscape from before, from what it looked like pre, 
European colonization. And that's primarily from this massive, um, yeah, invasion event by your like, European annual grasses. So it was thought that prior to European, like widespread European establishment, that California grasslands were um, dominated by um, either perennial grasses and or uh, forbs. And so this this preponderance of annual grasses is definitely a new characteristic. And um, and it came over, you know, and I think that there is speculation about how that happened. There was a mega drought. There was a big drought. Um, and and the introduction of of um, domesticated livestock widespread that co-occurred with this invasive annual spread. And so um, certainly could play play a picture there. I mean, before that, right, there was bison grazing. There was other ungulates um, roaming the landscape. And so, um, uh, across, across the Americas, across the United States. And, um, so you certainly had grazing and herbivory and those, those populations have plummeted as domesticated livestock have risen. Um, and there used to be a lot more prescribed fire on the ground, cultural burnings, a lot more fire that mm -hmm. helped to maintain these landscapes as well. And mm -hmm. so that's something that I think a lot of landowners are, um, trying to reintroduce at this point in California. I'm just curious in your, in your restoration efforts, do you try to, to move back towards that pre, uh, you know, settlement ecology, or is that just simply out of the question? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, people are talking about the Buffalo commons in the Midwest, right. And trying to uh, replant the, uh, the native grasses. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, does that, is that, is anyone trying to do that here in California? Replanting native grasses? Well, in a sense, trying to restore the rangeland mm -hmm. to its, I don't know, pre-lapsarian state, I suppose it would be. Yeah, certainly. And I think what I would say, um, yeah, there's lots of restoration efforts. And, and I think generally folks understand that um, it's important to look to the past. What was this landscape like? What um, uh, and and learn from it and use that as a guiding post. But that we also have to look to the future. And mm -hmm. so, Point Blue uh, takes a that's part of our climate smart conservation approach. So we have a whole climate smart restoration lens, and a piece of that is modeling what our future climate scenario is going to be in restoration areas, and can that help you determine what plants are best to try to restore there. Um, so maybe you are going for replanting of perennial grasses, but the projected future climate at a site might tell you, well, this perennial grass might do better than this perennial grass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Um, so it can help guide decisions. And so I think it's a yes and that looking to the past is really important and um, looking to the future as well. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Sustainability Now. Uh, I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Dr. Chelsea Carey of Point Blue Conservation Science, which is a rather large operation that has projects, as it turns out, all over the world. Um, and your, there's a co-authored commentary that you, you contributed to, and I want to quote from it. Um, soil carbon science, oh, it's called Soil Carbon Science for Policy and Practice, and it argues that Quote, there's scientific consensus on the need to build re to rebuild soil organic carbon for sustainable land stewardship, unquote, but that there is also, quote, disagreement about the advisability and plausibility of rebuilding soil carbon 
as part of climate mitigation initiatives. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the sort of the pros and cons argument. I mean, in the sense of, of you know, what it, what the efforts are about, I mean, carbon sequestration, and mm -hmm. why uh, is there disagreement about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I guess to start, I'll say that as a scientific community, there's very little disagreement, if any, um, about the fact that we've lost soil carbon. We know we've lost soil carbon. And we know that that's contributed to right, you know, to rising atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations over the past 12,000 years of human land use for. Um, and so when you have a loss, conceivably there's an opportunity to rebuild. And so we know rebuilding is possible through soil health stewardship. And we have principles, soil health principles, like keep the soil covered with plants, keep um, minimize disturbance. So try to minimize tillage or other physical disturbances of the soil. Um, try to maximize diversity in your plant community. These are principles that we have that we can rely on that we know if we use them will help rebuild carbon. So I would say that that's sort of the foundation of agreement is that we know we've lost carbon from the soil and we know we can rebuild it through certain through certain practices that achieve those principles. I think where the debate enters is around how, what's possible, like the biophysical limitations of carbon sequestration in other words, is it possible to be rebuild enough carbon to be a meaningful part of the climate solution? And there's there's nuances in there, like why some people think that maybe we we can't, um, that I'm not sure are worth getting into. We certainly can here, but but there's there's debate around how much we can rebuild, um, and and if it's fast enough and at a scale big enough to help mitigate the climate. And so a piece of that that scale piece and that scaling piece, how fast we can, is really social and political constraints. So I think there's concern over, can we mobilize at a large enough scale and fast enough to draw down carbon into the land base um, enough that it will that it will be a viable piece of this climate solution? Um, you have folks on both sides of the camp there, but you do you have with very strong voices from a science perspective. Um, other areas of concern, I think, um, these like cons include, um, things like whether or not carbon sequestration from the land in one place would inherently result in carbon emissions elsewhere. And so that's something we call like leakages. So if you do regenerative practices in one place, if there are trade-offs to how much food you can produce, um, you, maybe maybe there's short-term reductions in how much food you can produce because you're not putting pesticides and you're not tilling, um, this kind of thing. Well, then will you have to expand your agricultural lands further out? So now you just have more and land under agricultural production. That's something called like a leakage. 
And then another thing that folks worry about is permanent. So when you capture carbon in the soil, what, will it stay locked away long enough to make a difference for the climate? So that's where some of the debate is. And I think a lot of it stems from the solutions um, at hand. So um, I see a lot of this tension really come in in the carbon market offset space. So these voluntary yeah, carbon markets, because that would that would say that would allow emitters to continue emitting and and they can offset those emissions with soil carbon sequestration. Now, I think people have lots of concerns over that. And, and I would agree with many of those. I think the, the, the overwhelming voice is that we need to stop emitting and draw down. Um, and, you know, for what it's worth, I think at Point Blue's perspective, my perspective is that I think natural and working land conservation and stewardship have an important piece to play in a, any climate change mitigation portfolio. And I think there's nuance there. Place-based expectations and actions are super critical. And we need like ongoing science to inform best mm -hmm. practices, but that's that certainly the land base um has a has a role to play that that will be meaningful. I mean, this accounting problem of, you know, with carbon credits uh appeared with forests 20. 20 odd years ago, right? In the, in the 90s. I mean, so it's not a, it's not a new question. And, and I, under, I understand the accounting is a really difficult problem. Um, have there been, to, to the best of your knowledge, has anyone done successful carbon sequestration? I mean, it's a fairly new practice. Um, and I'm just wondering whether there are cases, and now I'm not talking about laboratory or controlled spaces. I'm talking now about, you know, rangeland and farmland. Do you know of any? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. good. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of examples. And um, one of like the longest running agricultural, it's not in the lab, but it's it's like a it's a production um, enterprise is Rothamsted. And it's Rothamsted research. And it's in um, over in Europe, and it's mm -hmm. the longest running agricultural research institution in the world. It was founded in, I think, the um, mid 1800s. Mm -hmm. And they have just like, this just is just one example. Over that time, they have, um, you know, just a wealth of data showing that stewardship can matter. And the, the different, different practices that you put on the ground can sequester carbon. And so um there's many, many like that um, across across the world. And so we absolutely know we can sequester carbon through our stewardship. And then it's just questions of how much can we scale it? Will it stay there long enough in the soil once we've sequestered it? Um, how do we do it so there's not unintended consequences elsewhere? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're coming um, to the end of our time together. And so uh, is there anything else you might like to mention, and where can our listeners file, find out more about about your work and Point Blue's work? Yeah, I I'm not sure that there's anything else you know from a content perspective I like to mention. I hope that you know folks just find wonder and awe in the soil, and when they're out walking, look down below your feet and just think about sort of all of all of what the soil is providing and um, and who's living below ground and just have a renewed sense of appreciation there. And if folks want to find um, resources, I mean, just the easiest is to go to Point Blue's website at pointblue.org. We have lots of our resources up online there. 
Um, that microbe guide, the soil microbe guide that um, you mentioned is on there. That's a guide that I had the pleasure of writing in collaboration with one of my former colleagues who would, um, illustrated it. She's a scientific illustrator. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so it documents all of the below, the below ground world for California rangelands in particular and highlights um, some notable groups of organisms, uh, talks about their importance, um, thinks through what, how we can steward them, um, and, uh, and provide resources to, um, monitor them too, as well to look at them. And so I'd say, you know, folks can check out that. And then if they're looking, and if you're looking for a coffee table book, I'm just going to give one more plug, the Global okay. Soil Biodiversity Initiative. Um, they have an incredible atlas. Um, it's called the Global Soil Biodiversity Atlas. And it's a, this big coffee table book. Um, and it's just, it is, it is incredible. And so I don't think it's super expensive. I have one. I, it's, um, pretty reasonable. I would highly recommend if anybody's interested in, um, having something at their fingertips. Well, Dr. Carey, thank you so much for being my guest on sustainability now. Thank you for the invitation. It was my pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Sustainability Now. Uh, my guest today was Dr. Chelsea Carey of Point Blue Conservation Science where she's Director of Soil Research and Conservation. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainabilitynow, as well as Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make KSquid your community radio station and keep it going. And so, until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. <laughs>